Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. Jeremy Frank, LA Opera's associate chorus master, is actually a man of many talents, conductor, pianist, educator, and mixologist. He is certainly the delightful host of LA Opera Connect's popular Opera Happy Hour web series. When you have time, you'll want to check out LA Opera's website at www.laopera.org, where you can find an entire library of Opera Happy Hour episodes in which Jeremy invites us to join in the fun of learning about opera and your beverage of choice. Cheers. Hi. Welcome to Opera Happy Hour. We'll be exploring lots of questions like what makes a musical a musical and what makes an opera an opera? And is there any overlap? Spoiler alert, there's tons of overlap. And I can't wait to show you where those two genres cross over. To help me on my musical exploration, I've asked my friend Ashley Fatolia to join me. Those of you who have been around LA Opera for a while probably know Ashley already. Just in the last year during the pandemic, he appeared on a living room recital and on a special recital in February called Black Love, celebrating the music of African-American composers over the last 160 years or so. Uh, Ashley is also a huge proponent for new and contemporary opera, and he has appeared in three major groundbreaking productions in LA's The Industry Company. But for all of those like bona fides in the operatic world, his training actually is largely based in musical theater. And because of that, I thought he would be a perfect guest to explore exactly where the lines are drawn between musical theater and opera. So without further ado, welcome, Ashley. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Jeremy. It's a pleasure to be with you. Yay. So um, what makes a musical a musical and what makes an opera an opera? That's a good one. That's a... <laughs> it's kind of tricky, isn't it? It is tricky. It's tricky. <laughs> I remember when I first went to college and, uh, you know, we thought we were being so profound asking ourselves that kind of question. And the, the quote unquote easy answer that people always told me was that musicals are musical dramas. Usually the music sounds kind of contemporary, but not always. But one of the biggest differences is that there's a play with spoken dialogue in a musical and there isn't in opera. And then the more I got to know opera, I realized that isn't true, <laughs> at least on the opera side of the equation. And right. is it true even on the musical theater side? Not always. I mean, it's that's it. There's exceptions to the rule. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and in, in opera, especially, like you said, you discover like, hey, wait a minute, that this piece doesn't follow that rule <laughs> at all. Or, yeah. wow, I didn't expect this to be so uh, have this much dialogue, maybe. Or I didn't mm -hmm. realize that this incorporated this in it. Yeah. yeah. Musicals in particular, in the contemporary sense, are 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 tricky to to try and marry to that idea. And then sometimes you find like, wow, it fits right in. <laughs> Either yeah. with like the form or the plot. Like a lot of times we find that the plots are like, whoa, that feels a lot like a Puccini opera I saw a few years back. <laughs> well, yeah, you might be referencing Rent, um, which actually is almost, uh, it's an updated version of the same plot as La Boheme oh. um, to the 90s, uh, New York in the 90s, but it captures all of the same drama. and. Uh, by setting it in our time with our folks, it ends up being really powerful. Mm -hmm. um, but there wasn't always a time when musicals were aiming to be so all-encompassing. Uh, 
what were they like before that? Where did they come from? Well, you have a lot of influence from everything that happened, obviously, right before. And you think about um, sort of the 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 changes in what we do in opera at that time, bef- the, the periods before that of operetta and things changing and, and new styles being adapted with sort of the more modern technologies that were becoming available. Um, of course, the advent of vaudeville and yeah. uh, all of the 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 show showmen that came through um, sort of that that's the beginning of that like triple threat idea right where you have <laughs> to really be good at a lot of different things so what is a triple threat actually ah the triple threat is that elusive performer who is equally as threatening and dangerous on the <laughs> stage as a singer a dancer an actor performer uh, and usually, I, in my thinking, and in sort of what I've come to know over time of it, it usually refers to someone who really is is even more than that. Like it, that's yeah. sort of the given, but it's like it, it's a catch-all for that person that has that it factor. Yeah, I, I always is, call it the ting factor. Right. Yeah, it's that little like, oh, what is that? Because it's the person who will learn and adapt and just do anything. Um. So you know, the, the tradition of this show is to have. A drink pairing with the repertoire that we explore. We were just talking about what we like to drink and you say, oh, you know, I'm a scotch drinker and I'm just barely a scotch drinker. But I thought there was something really old timey and kind of classy <laughs> about it. It is. That's a good way to put it, man. That's it's it's got a me. huge culture that I think you are into more than I am. So what can you tell us about scotch? Yeah, I'm slowly getting what uh, indoctrinated. I think it's happening. I do enjoy it. And I enjoy it because it's sort of a, it's simple, it's mellow, and I do like learning about the different profiles. Um, so I was told this years ago when I first had it, um, one of the first old fashions I had a friend made and he said, this is a gentleman's drink. Mm-hmm. And what he really meant was, I don't have a lot of scotch to be pouring into this glass. So don't sit here and drink this up like you got more coming. <laughs> sip it like you have some sense. And truly, like, you know, you sip it. It's a it's a cultural thing. It's a relaxing thing. If you spend time with friends or whatever, hanging out. Yeah, it's it's totally. I, I, I couldn't agree more. It totally is for sipping. It's um, It's like a beautiful partner to a nice conversation. Ah, I like that. I like that. Well, let me make a quick toast. Um, Thanks for helping me explore our country's uh, perhaps biggest contribution to music on the stage. And uh, I couldn't imagine a nicer co-pilot to navigate this with. Cheers. (laughs) Cheers. (laughs) I remember seeing you in Invisible Invisible Cities, Cities. (laughs) which was truly amazing. And you made such an impression on me, not just because the music was adventurous and and kind of difficult but really beautiful too but just your presence like your presence on stage there was something talk about the ting i thought you really Uh, had it and thanks jeremy and then while we were talking about this you told me that you had like serious extensive training in musical theater and i wonder uh tell i'd love for you to tell us a little bit about your experience like that and maybe also with a an eye to how that prepared you for singing opera. I was just taking acting classes and my friend was um, taking voice lessons. And she said, you should take voice too. You should you should do the mm-hmm. musical theater stuff we do. And I was kind of like, mm, I don't know. 
and she basically said like we're not gonna hang out or talk anymore if you don't come like this audition tomorrow and so i just went i didn't even i don't know if i told my mom because she was picking me up and i just went before she picked me up with my friends from this acting class to an audition and i sang for this musical theater producer and ended up in this program at, at the conservatory and ended up doing a lot of musical theater, loving it, kind of falling into music lessons, singing, dancing all at the same time uh-huh. and doing musical theater. I remember even not having music. Like I didn't know I needed music to show up to an audition for. This was the first audition ever for Ash. Wow. For so music. what did you sing? In an I aud- sang Amazing Grace. I sang that in church. I knew that one. Yeah. So, I sang it and he said, he told me, he said, sing it like you sing it in church. So I did. And I remember um, afterwards, uh, some of the kids who ended up being my friends after this were like listening at the door and they were like, who the heck are you? Why didn't you tell us you could sing it? I, at that time, uh, Jeremy, honestly, like I was still discovering my gift and my purpose and what I wanted to do. didn't know it was anything yet. I was just kind of like, I don't know. I (laughs) just wanted to do this this show with my friend who said I had to audition. And this is how it all sort of... (laughs) happens you were telling me earlier that by the time you graduated you had done something like 23 productions. yeah i should have done this total count by it might have been more than that but 23 is a, is a safe guesstimate yeah. i had gotten i had gotten bitten by the performing arts bug pretty early on in that whole situation so i be i became a performing arts kid and just sacrificed my summers willingly <laughs> and and I, I never even thought about it They're like yeah let's go theater 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 and um it was I, i'm glad i did like because I think because of what I had learned in musical theater and my understanding of the form, I really, when I first looked at opera, I remember thinking of it in a musical theater context because that was how my brain received and understood the the sort of drama and the lin- the story, linear story and all of that. What would you say are the similarities in story and pre- presentation between the two? Like, how are they similar? Well, for me, I think I was looking for those similarities, right? So I was seeking out like, oh, this solo is really comparable to, I mean, this aria is really comparable to a solo in this or that or this, this um, particularly like uh, the, there are a couple of moments in Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice's collaborations where in like Evita or in, Mus- or in Jesus Christ Superstar, there are these sort of accompanied dialogue parts that like often reminded me when I saw Wretched to Team at first, like, hey, that sounds like that. That's really like that part from Jesus Christ Superstar. That's yeah. really like that part from uh, of Joseph. You know, it's, it's interesting how I started matching these things and then learning truly the 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 style and the, the form of opera itself mm-hmm. and um, realizing how probably musical theater had picked up a lot of its <laughs> a lot of its form from it. But even like even little things, Jeremy, like um, overture and oh, things like yeah. that, that I could kind of match up to, you know, the style that I was seeing. But but um, beyond that, when I've really seen musicals that like capture my mind, they're mm-hmm. darn near operatic in their production value. Yeah, like that really take me there. It's because they took me out of my my seat. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. which is what I love about opera because it's like when you go see a Thais, oh my God. Like, I love that show. <laughs> that is like, if you want, when people are like, what kind of opera? I'm like, just go see a good one of those, like good singing, yeah. all that opulent set, like that great, like everything. I want to, I want my eyes, my brain to just be like, Poof. yeah. And that's when the musicals can do that. When the musicals that I loved did that and I then had that same experience in an opera's audience, that was when I started making these connections of like, even even the dramatic intention 
of the composer became clearer once I could have that experience as the audience member. Um, our first excerpt that we'll hear today comes from Rogers and Hammerstein's uh, South Pacific, which um, was written in the 1940s, uh, and it was an immediate hit. Uh, I think that show in its first run had something like 1,925 performances, which is just amazing to think that this show, written very shortly after uh, the end of World War II, could have that much success. But for its time, it had these tremendously like progressive messages about racism that were really important and sadly are still really relevant and important for our country to hear. Um, what are you going to sing from this show today? Ah, this is uh, Younger Than Springtime. Uh, this is the Bally High duet aria, uh, if you want to call it that. Cable is falling in love and he's uh, in love with Bloody Mary's daughter, who we find out, uh, we find out all this later that he's the union is not meant to be. Of course, it's mm. it's a little more operatic in its scope at the at the the conclusion. But uh, right now, he's totally falling in love, and he's a marine on a mission. He's got a, a spy mission he's been sent to handle. But in the meantime, like in between time, as you say, he's been uh, taking on a side sort of story to this mythical island where uh, there's this ceremony that's supposed to take place. And he fell in love with this, this uh, I guess now what's part of Vietnam. Um, okay. But at the time, uh, the, the girl is essentially, um, I don't know, it's kind of like a Madame Butterfly moment. I was <laughs> like, just about to ask that, actually. <laughs> there's a little Madame Butterfly thing going on here. Well, yeah, of... since we're making connections between MT and full-on opera, I was right. like, there's, there's some themes here that resonate. Absolutely. This this very true thing in history we know of um, a lot of relationships that happened during the war that because of uh, people from different countries coming together and not really being either believing in being together long term or for the actual purpose of going back home to where they came from yes. separated. And then, you know, you have people who whose lives are broken because of that either because yeah. they had children who are, you know, left fatherless or or because of the relationships themselves. So here's that example. You know, I, it makes me think if we're making comparisons between that and Butterfly, every time I, I um, teach a young tenor Pinkerton for the first mm -hmm. time, I say uh, that the love duet at the end of Act One has to be real. There's this uh, intoxicating magic that happens between both of them and it's real. And I yeah. think that's what we hear in Younger Than Springtime, too. It's it's real emotion. It doesn't mean it's right. going to last forever, right. but it is uh, super heartfelt. That's it. And that's what that's what gets your audience to really go along with you. They believe yeah. it, you know, because it is a you're, that's a great point. It is a real moment and it's beautiful. Younger than springtime, are you? Softer than starlight, are you? Warmer than winds of June are the gentle lips you gave me. Gayer than laughter, are you? Sweeter than music, are you? Angel and lover, heaven and earth, are you to me? And when your youth and joy invade, and fill my heart as now they do then younger than springtime 
Am I gayer than laughter? Am I angel and lover, heaven and earth? Am I with you? The next stop that I'd like us to investigate on our little overview of musical theater is uh, My Fair Lady, which is a 1956 musical by Lerner and Lowe, and it's based on George Bernard Shaw's 1913 stage play Pygmalion, in which we meet a character, Eliza Doolittle, and a professor, Professor Higgins, um, is sort of blustering, and they make a bet that he uh, can teach her how to speak proper Edwardian English. Now that's, <laughs> nowadays that's kind of rife with a lot of classism and you know, <laughs> linguistic yeah. fraught problems, but there's a lot of really charming music in this piece and um, essentially a lot of really interesting human story. Yeah. And, uh, and you don't sing either of those two characters, you sing a different character. Yeah, Freddie is a, uh... Freddie's high society, and it, it's sort of, I guess it's, if you think about it in the context of everything else that's happening, he represents a big shift for Eliza, because this is her first introduction, and they're the first trial, sort of, after they've made this bet, and they've done some training to see if she can really fool people in high society, and Freddie... Uh, Hill falls in love with her, like madly in love with her almost immediately, and he's amused by her her way of talking because yeah. they note that it's different. They know it's not, it's not exactly the King's English, if you will, but it's not Cockney. They, what's, it's funny. She's got this slang and he's fascinated by her. They have an interesting relationship because Eliza at this point is kind of like, there's an independent woman vibe that happens with her a little bit, which I Absolutely. really, I love. Me too. And I, I think that, um, later after this number he comes back when she's leaving and she's leaving kind of upset with with Higgins and Freddie comes to profess his love and she tells him if you really love me don't tell me show me and yeah. I think that's one of the most amazing moments in that time for a musical theater piece yeah. to have a woman who said that if we're drawing connections between like operatic literature and musical theater literature am I way out on a limb if I suggest that there's a little bit of Cinderella in this story yes especially like rossini's treatment of cenerentola right. where you know she works hard she does but um in that version of cinderella's story instead of giving her a shoe that has fallen off she chooses to give him a pair one of a pair of matching bracelets and uh essentially tells him in a recit like if you love me for me come find me and when you find the match for this bracelet Wonder Woman style, you'll have <laughs> you'll have found the love of your life, and um, it's. I, I think uh, hearing you talk about Freddie's sincerity mm -hmm. and his real deep love for Eliza, immediately I just thought, oh yeah, that reminds me of this other thing. And that's the sweet thing about it is that he is sincerely in love with her. Like he 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 doesn't care who she is, really. Yeah, or you can tell who that knows it, who knows who how knows. he loves. That's it. And that that is really important, especially at that time in society. Yeah. I mean, she was selling flowers in Covent Garden at the beginning of the show. I think all of that extroverted, like, I don't care who knows, let the world be damned. I'm going right. to profess it. Right. Uh, it just oozes out of the music. It's it's and so sweet. That's it. It's like that sort of shout it to the world, you know, yeah. and, and there's that cute even sort of 
part of the flirting and the courting there where she's basically like, shut up. <laughs> like, just go away. Oh, this guy. Well, he's still outside. Oh, God. Yeah. It's, it's super charming. It sounds a little something like this. I have often walked down this street before, but the pavement always stayed beneath my feet before. All at once am I several stories high, knowing I'm on the street where you live. Are there lilac trees in the heart of town? Can you hear a lock in any other part of town? Does enchantment pour out of every door? No, it's just on the street where you live. And oh, the towering feeling just to know somehow you are near. The overpowering feeling that any second you may suddenly appear. People stop and stare, they don't bother me. For there's nowhere else on earth that I would rather be. Let the time go by, I won't care if I can be here on the street. Gosh, that was pretty. <laughs> <laughs> Why, thank you. The, the last song that I'd like us to explore today comes from Stephen Sondheim's piece, Sweeney Todd, from 1979. Gosh, what a dark and tumultuous kind of piece. Um, it's based on a book by Hugh Wheeler. Uh, and in it, um, the title character, Sweeney Todd, he's, uh, we first meet him. He's been rescued at sea uh, by a guy named Anthony. And uh, we learn a little bit about his history. Um, a corrupt judge has had his eyes on Sweeney's wife. So he gets these trumped up charges and Sweeney gets sent off to a penal colony. Um, meanwhile, the judge sexually assaults his wife and she is so distraught that she takes poison and essentially orphans, we think, uh, their daughter, Joanna, who becomes a ward of this horrible, corrupt judge. Like, just terrible <laughs> and uh, Sweeney Todd comes back to London and he has one thought on his mind and that is revenge <laughs> that is it and he shows up and acts a fool as my grandma would say <laughs> he, <laughs> yes. and he's just so wrought with revenge that he he comes up with this plot to kill the judge and um eventually he ends up involved in a lot of other things. It, it sort of, he sidetracks himself bent on this revenge, but he ends up um, literally killing someone in his barber chair when they 
threatened to uh, tell his secret about his true identity before he's ready to reveal it. Yeah. And um, he ends up help, with the aid of Mrs. Lovett disposing of the body in her pie shop. And she <laughs> comes up with a wonderful new recipe and opens a restaurant and is very popular on Fleet Street. And um, Sweeney's chair is always full. He's always got customers, but he basically has taken, uh, in the midst of him trying to seek this revenge, he's taken a really sort of fatalistic look at life and at mankind. And he sees himself as doing a service, which is really twisted all of these things happen and we, we talk about you know these things sort of being operatic in their in their storytelling and this is certainly that moment where Sweeney finally does he ends up getting the judge in the shop and having this chance to exact this revenge but he's so he's so hell, hell bent on his revenge and he's so convinced in what he's doing he's distracted and ends up killing the beggar woman who also comes in the shop and and later realizes that this beggar woman is actually his loving wife, Lucy, who had not died, had poisoned herself, but it didn't work. And yeah. she had gone mad. And um, he realizes in that moment what what the revenge, what the toll of the revenge has taken on him yeah. and how he's really destroyed himself. You know, if we're if we're again drawing parallels between the musical theater world and the opera world, um, uh, it reminds me of operas that are driven a lot by fate. Like in some ways, this isn't so far away from some of Verdi's settings of Shakespeare, like Macbeth. Uh, and when we watch his demise over the course of the opera, right. and of course Shakespeare's play too, and same thing with Lady Macbeth. But this is the same kind of um, self-inflicted un mental unraveling of a title character. That's a good way to put it. And it is, you you can see it happening because as much as you're rooting for Sweeney, you're also kind of going, whoa, what's, what yeah. is happening, man? What are you doing? Yeah. You're, going, you're going wrong. He puts himself aside even, like who mm -hmm. you were or what you really care about, the family and the sort of ideals that you were hurt with and, and came to seek revenge are now even, or do they even exist in your mind? Yeah. Or is this more about this moment and this this act and what happened in the wake of that? You know, and all the characters that have been changed and the lives that have been disturbed and London that has been disrupted, of course. Yeah. But in that amazing musical theater, opera performance way, the story has something and moments for everyone. In fact, that's what we've chosen for your song from this piece today. Um, one of the, uh, I'd say, pretty few moments of real simple beauty. Mm -hmm. um, tell us about Not While I'm Around, which is what you're going to sing. Yeah, so this is uh, sung by Toby, um, whose character starts off uh, as Tobias. The he's assistant to the barber that initially threatens to out uh, Sweeney and 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 tell everyone his true identity. But um, instead of bribing Sweeney as he tries to, he ends up dead. And and Toby, who's kind of simple, ends up sticking around the shop. And uh, he he has a lot of affection for Miss Lovett, and she sort of takes him under her wing. She gives him a job at the restaurant um, <laughs> when things start taking when business starts picking up. And um, she she definitely um, cares about him, and he deeply cares about her. Sort of in this sort of maternal way and he tells mrs lovett you know i'm gonna protect you and i'm gonna yeah. make sure and 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 you know mrs lovett's character is amazing too because 
before Sweeney got there, she was really having a hard time Mm -hmm. and things have picked up and she's just right along with it. I mean, she's an interesting person herself. So she's sort of, you know, dismissing it, but he has this really honest and sincere moment where he really genuinely is trying to be protective and loving. And, you know, the- I I love that that's his, um, that's his instinct. Uh, That's absolutely it. Maybe because he's simple, but, um, but he just wants to protect her. Yeah, that's exactly it's, it. It's so and beautiful. that's and that's sweet in and of itself. Nothing's gonna harm you, not while I'm around. Nothing's gonna harm you, no sir, not while I'm around. Demons are prowling everywhere nowadays. I'll send them howling, I don't care. I got ways. No one's gonna hurt you, no one's gonna dare. Others can desert you, not to worry, whistle, I'll be there. Demons will charm you with a smile for a while, but in time, nothing can harm you, not while I'm around. I hope you found that performance as beautiful as I did. And just know that Ashley and I just barely touched the tip of the iceberg of this repertoire. Uh, For me, this is one of the truly uh, great things about being American, this repertoire and the music that we get to call our own. So I encourage you to drink deeply from this well. And it's so easy to do. Um, You can look on all sorts of streaming services and find film versions of these original musicals. It's a great way to get to know our repertoire better. Stay happy, stay healthy. We can't wait to see you back in the theater. Cheers. You've been listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thank you, and see you at the opera. If you've enjoyed listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.